Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always, and we've got a good show for you today. We're going to recap the NFL draft. Some big surprises in that draft over the weekend, especially on Saturday. We'll also dive into some early discussion on, yes, the 2021 draft, because uh, it sounds like the Oregon Ducks could have a potential number one draft pick on their roster We've also got some Oregon football recruiting news that's happened uh, uh, over the weekend. And then uh, we're also going to dive into some really good news for the Oregon basketball team, just another confirmation that they've been looking to get uh, towards next season. But first, real quick, I want to remind you guys all out there that 50% off an annual VIP membership is still going on. You can pay uh, $53.70 for your annual membership. It's a one-time payment that's half off our normal price. Or if you don't want to go annual, you can do month-to-month. And we do have an awesome deal there, $1 for your first month. And then after that first month is up, you pay $9.95 thereafter. Both options get you inside scoop, expert analysis, and opinion. You get to read all the content across the entire 24-7 sports network and not just one site, meaning you subscribe to us. You get to read our content. You get to get access to us, but you also get all that uh, with the USC site and with the Ohio State site and the Arizona site. Uh, all the big teams that Oregon is playing in football, you can stay up to date on all of them throughout the year with one membership to DuckTerritory.com. So, Eric, let's dive into this draft. Uh, big surprise going in to the draft. I think we were all kind of thinking, hey, you know what? Herbert could potentially go as high as three, probably going to be somewhere five or six. Maybe he slips to eight or nine, certainly not out of the top ten. Uh, and it was kind of – what kind of surprise would we get from Justin Herbert? Ended up being very little surprise or, or viral shocking, you know, impact there. He felt he, he was drafted sixth. I shouldn't say fell. Uh, he, he was drafted sixth overall by the San Diego Chargers. You and I did a podcast the day after that. We both said that we felt like this was his best landing spot out of all the options. And then it was, okay, now, we're going to see maybe three, maybe four, maybe maybe five more guys get picked, and that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, we I talked about the possibility, and I was even going to prepare writing a story on this, of just if Oregon had had every player invited to the NFL Combine selected, and that was seven players, that would be a, the new school record for most selections in a draft. And yet, after Herbert goes you know, early on in that first round, uh, pretty quiet uh, from the rest of those guys. Uh, Troy, Troy Dye goes in the fourth round of the Minnesota Vikings, Shane Lemieux goes in the fifth to the New York Giants. Um, and then Jake Hansen, the last duck off the board in the sixth round uh, by the Green Bay Packers. That means that Calvin Throckmorton, and this is probably where I'll start. If we're talking big surprises of the draft, this was the big one for me. Calvin Throckmorton goes undrafted, um, immediately signs with the New Orleans Saints. Pretty good deal. Looks like he, he $12,500 
signing bonus, um, $110,000 in guaranteed salary. Um, nice numbers for somebody who wasn't selected, but still, like, I mean, you look through what he accomplished at, at Oregon. I mean, he started 52 consecutive games. I, I posted this on social media, so you can go look it up, but he started 52 consecutive games at, you know, including stops at not only right guard and right tackle, but also at center and left tackle. And he played everywhere besides left guard because Shane Lemieux was starting there every single game. And not only was he extremely, I guess, consistent in his ability to start and versatile, he was really highly regarded. I think he had like one sack allowed over the course of his last two seasons. He was an All-American, at least first or second team each of the last two seasons, and yet nobody elected to, to choose him, uh, you know, and we saw a lesser offensive lineman from the state of Oregon, from, you know, Blake Blandell going uh, from Oregon State, I think in the sixth or seventh round, and I'm kind of going like, how does Calvin Throckmorton fall this far? So that was the big surprise for me. I'm, I'm guessing, Matt, you probably share that as well, but, like, I, I, I look at that and think, I just don't understand it, you know. If there was injury concerns, okay, maybe. If there were off-the-field concerns, maybe. But there, as far as we know, none of that existed. Throckmorton was extremely healthy and consistent, like I said. Certainly no, no problems off the off the field. Uh, a really, really excellent student, nicknamed Doc Throck for a reason. Um, this one was really puzzling for me. You kind of share that, Matt? Yeah, I was blown away that Throckmorton wasn't selected in this draft. And I, I think I, I'd said maybe a couple times – throughout maybe the football season or the early parts of the lead up to the NFL draft that he was more than likely going to you know transition over to the interior and play guard maybe right. maybe even center but i felt like the fact that this was a guy that had starts at every single five positions and the fact that Oregon had such a dominant player he he just wasn't going to drop and not to not to knock on Jake Hansen, but if you'd told me that Hansen went and Throckmorton didn't, I would have been blown away. I know. I I think it's it's just interesting, and in, I guess to see how the NFL franchises evaluate and value certain offensive linemen. Because I think if you looked at what from a production perspective at Oregon over the last couple of seasons, and certainly if we're if we're going to group Shane Lemieux, Jake Hansen, and Calvin Throckmorton together, because the, the three of those guys did start basically four straight seasons together. Not basically, they did. I think most people would say Jake Hansen was probably maybe, I don't want, I don't want to pick too negative of a word here, but maybe he was the least deserving of, of a draft selection from that group. And um, I, I guess I'm just surprised and confounded by the fact that Throckmorton of those three is the one that gets left out. Obviously, um, maybe there's a little bit more certainty with Hansen, given that he, he does have experience starting at center for four seasons. That's something you can kind of, right in stone, okay, you're bringing this guy in, he can start there. Um, Lemieux was settled in at left guard. Maybe the fact that Throckmorton moved around so much, and maybe there's some, maybe there's actually, maybe that hurt him a little bit. Maybe there's concern about where his fit is. Um, obviously, probably isn't that tackle, which probably does hurt him. The position that he played primarily in college is probably not the one he's going to be able to translate to at the next level. But I thought the fact that he'd shown through starting at other positions um, that he was capable, that that would really be beneficial. So, Kind of just weird, weird that he didn't get, you know, I, I guess agreeing that weird that Throckmorton doesn't come off the board and that Hansen does get selected, but exciting for Hansen in terms of you look at that organization, the Green, pa- Green Bay Packers have done fantastic things for a really long time. Um, he'll now have an opportunity to, to fight to, to be a starting center uh, and, we'll, and kind of go from there, but a good organization for him. In fact, I think you look at most of these, most of where Oregon players landed and you feel pretty good about at least the organization they landed in. 
I, I mean, yeah, and, and I don't want to be like I'm so negative on, on Hansen because I think he, he developed an unfair reputation. I, I think he was more than draft eligible and a, and a guy that should right. have been picked. Uh, I just didn't think there was there wasn't a scenario in my mind where I thought, okay, Hansen's going to go ahead of Throckmorton and Throckmorton doesn't get drafted. Like that just blows my mind. But Throckmorton still lands with the New Orleans Saints, and like you said, gets a over a hundred thousand dollar contract, which is good. Gets over twelve thousand dollars in a signing bonus, and and teams only get certain amounts of uh, a certain amount to give out for signing bonuses for undrafted free agents, and Throckmorton received over ten percent, I believe, of the Saints allocated money that they were able to give for bonuses. Uh, I, I believe it's somewhere in like the hundred and thirty thousands uh, total that they're able to, to dish out. Um, so good sign there for, for Throckmorton and just the value that they have in him. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if Throckmorton makes that roster. Um, we have some other guys that have been picked up as undrafted free agents. Uh, Juwan Johnson, Gus Cumberlander, Jacob Breland, uh, Brady Ayello, um, and my, it, Bryson Young is another yes. one that's also right. uh, been, been picked up. And basically every senior except for, to our knowledge, Dallas Warmack and Lamar Winston, two guys that were maybe fringe undrafted free agent guys, uh, out of the group that had good chances of being signed, basically everyone but those two have, have signed with the team. I, I was really... I guess pleased to see these guys land somewhere and pleased to see it happen quickly. And, and in fact, New Orleans is going to be maybe a, a new favorite spot for Oregon fans, depending on how these rosters shake out. Because of course you sign as an undrafted free agent, there's no guarantees, but, um, you just kind of look at how this all played out. And, and the Saints, I think, have three of those players heading to New Orleans for, from Oregon, um, with Juwan Johnson, Bryson Young, and Calvin Throckmorton. I think I have that right and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, that, that, that right there is somewhat significant. And it's also good, like, I just think, I posted this on the message board, Bryson Young in particular is really, I think, that's a really good feel-good story in my mind. As a player who came to Oregon, fairly highly regarded, a four-star recruit, didn't fit into kind of what the defensive schematics were for about two or three straight years, really three straight years. He hardly played as a junior. Senior season, Andy Avalos arrives. They kind of find a position that fits for him. He performs really well, starts every game of the season, and now he has a chance to make an NFL roster, to have a professional football career, which is probably something he didn't necessarily think could be the case or would be the case following his senior season, given what had happened his first three years where he was really uh, a kind of a bit player. And the same kind of thing with, with Gus Cumberlander, um, another guy who took a while to kind of get started and kind of get him himself in a position to be a contributor, but when he did, he made the most of it. Obviously, tough to see his college career end with that injury, but I'm happy to see those guys land places. Another player, Blake Maimon, uh, a punter, has not signed anywhere, but that would be another kind of feel-good story of a walk-on, getting an opportunity to play professional football. But um, all in all, I think these undrafted free agent stories, and, and especially a class of seniors that meant so much, I think it's just really exciting to see them land somewhere in the NFL to have a chance. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but uh, I think it's really exciting and encouraging. And, again, all these guys, I think, basically are primarily three-star recruits that that were kind of developed at Oregon. Um, exciting times to see 
so many of them uh, given an opportunity to at least make a roster. Now, it's never too early, right, to to look ahead to next season. Um, I think that's always the joy of the draft is that it's truly a year-round thing. And a couple days after the, the completion of the 2020 draft, everyone's already talking about the 2021. And early indications are that Pene Sewell, and we kind of felt like this beforehand, but it's always kind of good to see that justification that or that confirmation I should say that people outside of the Oregon bubble feel the same way. But Penny Sewell is already generating number one overall selection discussion for the twenty twenty one NFL draft. And I wanna really quickly on the podcast on I think it was Friday, uh I, I erred in saying that Penny Sewell was DraftKings number one player uh, in terms of projecting to 2021. That was, he was actually third. I misread that, so apologies for that. But, yes, I think the big one here is Matt Miller, who works for Bleacher Report. I don't know. In terms of people online and kind of – he's probably one of the top NFL draft analysts. He's certainly one yeah. of the more respected that I see out there. When I see his work, I take it very seriously. He has Penny Sewell going first overall in 2021 to the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, and that's kind of bucking the trend here because I actually put together – and you can check it out on the site um, – uh, a compilation kind of of all of the destination and selections for Penny Sewell in about eight or nine, I think it was nine uh, NFL mock drafts. And almost all of them had Penny Sewell going third or fourth or second or fourth, somewhere in that range with Trevor Lawrence going number one. But Matt Miller here kind of bucking the trend. Like I said, lists Sewell number one going to the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, obviously this would be an extremely significant scenario if this were to play out for Oregon. Um, you talk about number one overall selection history. Uh, for Oregon, it's really just George Shaw, and I think that was back in 1955, that have gone uh, first overall. Uh, you know, Other than that, you've obviously got Marcus Mariota, a couple of guys going third overall, and Deion Jordan, Joey Harrington, Akili Smith. But first overall, would pretty much, with, with Cement Sewell certainly amongst the greatest to do it at Oregon, um, he's going to have to go out and prove it. And as Miller states um, in his analysis, basically, that, if a team that needs a quarterback is selecting number one, they would probably take a, a strong look at Trevor Lawrence. But basically, if it's a team that has a quarterback situation settled, which is the case with the Bengals who just took Joe Burrow first overall in this last year's draft, then Sewell would make a ton of sense. And I think that's really an encouraging thing. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Obviously, quarterback does typically that position is going to run most of these drafts. They go, they go first overall almost every single year. But if there's a player to buck the trend and, and to kind of change that narrative, I think it could be Penny Sewell. And I wouldn't be sh- shocked at all if he comes out even stronger in 2020 uh, and forces these NFL franchises to make some tough calls in, in 2021 because you might be a situation where it's like, boy, are we really going to turn down a potential franchise left tackle for a decade plus and go with a quarterback who maybe we don't think as highly of? I don't know, but it's going to be a tough decision, and I think Sewell is very deserving of that, and it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that plays into um, his junior season and whether or not he decides to go or not afterwards. Yeah, Charles Power of 24-7 Sports, he's one of our national analysts. He released, literally just as we started this podcast, his 2021 mock draft, and he has two ducks in his first round. He has Penny Sewell, number two overall, going to the Washington Redskins, and he tra- he cited that, that during the draft that the Redskins traded their offensive tackle, Trent Williams, uh, 
during a long standoff. He was Trent Williams was traded to San Francisco, and that Sewell would make a, a strong case to be his replacement next season. Now, real quick, this kind of segues into our next discussion point here of what other players on Oregon could go early in the draft next year. And as an early meaning, uh, what player could, could be picked in the first or, or second round of, of next year's draft or, you know, other guys that we think that are that, that highly regarded. Uh, Eric, can you correctly guess the second player that he includes in the first round? I have not seen this at all, so I might be guess. I'm guessing in the dark here. I'm going to guess Javon Holland, but I, I really don't know. And I'm, I'm going with Holland. Okay, it is Holland. Yeah, he has Javon Holland going 30th to the San Francisco 49ers and cites his versatility as being able to play corner or safety uh, for the 49ers. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense considering the fact that, you know, Richard Sherman is getting up there in age and uh, they've got some other safeties that are up there in age as well. And I would agree with this. I would, I think Javon Holland is a first round talent and will be a guy that will more than likely, I'm going to make the call now on April 27th that I, I think duck fans should be prepared that Holland probably goes pro after his junior season. I, I'm not surprised by this at all. In fact, I was surprised that there weren't more people predicting this um, in terms of the NFL draft prognosticators. In fact, I was preparing, actually Kevin, our, our colleague, was preparing to write a story including all of where Javon Holland and Penny Sewell um, were placed in these mock drafts, but Holland barely popped up in any of them, so that kind of story kind of went out the window, and we were both sort of surprised by that, but this makes a lot of sense. I agree in terms of the versatility. Uh, the fact that he's shown the ability to play safety, this last year he played nickel, I think he has the, the ability to potentially play corner, potentially safety, potentially nickel at the next level, probably going to be safety or nickel depending on kind of the schemes the defense is run, but um, a really high-end player with great size at six foot one, and a, a close to 200 pounds, moves very well, obviously a playmaker, you see him as a punt returner and you know what kind of athleticism he has, um, improving as a tackler, I think that was something that really stood out in 2019 and 2018, he uh, struggled a little bit to, to, to make tackles in the open field, and I think a couple times cost the Ducks touchdowns, but last season was much more sure tackler. I agree in terms of like, I could see him being someone that, yeah, goes early as a junior and and you hate to see that, but you also, when a player does leave early, that's a good indication that they've accomplished a lot and that they're going to be good professional players and and neither of those things hurt a program, but I could see him going next year and yeah, maybe he slides somewhere into that first round. I certainly think that's reasonable. I think he has those athletic tools to be maybe one of those next kind of great duck defensive backs in the NFL. And we know there's been quite a few of those over the last decade or two. And Charles Power cites that, you know, probably what will decide him being a first or second rounder, uh, will be how well he runs in the pre-draft, the pre-draft process. Um, I, I think he's going to be one of those players that I agree. If he can get out and post a good 40 time, he's going to shoot up draft boards. But I think regardless, he'll still be successful because he's just one of those guys that while he may not be the fastest, he just makes the plays. And I was going to say it before you, you jumped in with it, but I, I think his punt return skills are tremendous. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a, a huge added value to his stock for the 2021 draft because a team that drafts him says, all right, well, we're getting a guy that's ultra versatile defensively. I mean, we could play him at nickel. We could play him at safety. We could even try playing him at corner. 
And oh, by the way, he's also going to be a special team standout, whether that's covering on kickoffs or punts, but we can also throw him back there to field punts and know that he could take him to the house. I mean, he's done that at Oregon. So I think that's a huge tip uh, in the the feather in the cap for, for Holland. And correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but wasn't there a coach this past season, I'm blanking on the name that said it, maybe it was even Crystal Ball, uh, but said that Holland could could have been, if they wanted to, their best receiver as well. He's that good with the, with the ball. Yeah, Cristobal said something about, I think this is when Juwan Johnson was out and they had all those other injuries at wide receiver, and he did say something about how Javon will tell you he'd, he'd, be a, he'd be a better receiver than a defensive back. I think that was kind of what the – and I think another assistant coach said something about how – maybe it was – I can't remember who it was back Back then, but uh, maybe it was Arroyo saying he was having to fight off or fighting to try to see if he get him on offense. But yeah, there was certainly some scuttle that like Holland's athleticism uh, was good enough that he could play wide receiver. And I think we saw that. And I know Kevin, I think, posted a couple of these on social media back then. It, during, during seven on seven, he kind of was able to flash some of those offensive skills. Uh, and so yeah, I mean, he's a player that certainly is exciting. Uh, for next year's draft, a couple other guys that, that come to mind for me that, that I'm excited about. I don't know if I see anyone else that I could see really going early aside from Holland and Sewell. I think those are kind of the, the guys and maybe the what other about ones. The, the Amade Lenore? Do you, do you think Lenore has day two potential? Oh, I, I meant early as in going a year early. Um, but yeah, sure. I, could, I, I was going to say, yeah, uh, I think Lenore and Graham, I don't know if Graham maybe is day two good, but maybe, maybe both those guys work and improve. I think Lenore has the physical attributes and he's shown at least in his time at Oregon to be a pretty darn capable shutdown corner out there. And he's very physical. I think he does a lot of things that will be attractive at the next level with his size and strength. Um, maybe some questions about his straight end speed, but I, I think he's a player that I could see that. And then in terms of players outside of um, Sewell and Holland that could go early the only one other that, that really comes to mind is maybe a C.J. Riddell, um, and that would have to be kind of a following a really strong, perfect season. Um, we should note that, you know, some people say that Riddell is small. I think the first running back taken uh, in this year's draft was from LSU, and he's actually a little bit smaller than Riddell, so that sort of is certainly a, a, a welcome change, I think, if you're Verdell looking at the landscape for that position at the NFL. Other players to maybe keep an eye on for next year, Austin Fallu, Jordan Scott, uh, obviously come to mind. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, if any of those safeties, if Nick Pickett or Brady Breeze develop. I, I kind of maybe would question if that is realistic, but um, I don't know, Matt. Anyone else that you, that is currently on the roster that you look at for 2021 and are really excited about their draft stock? I, I don't know if there's any other guys that could – elevate themselves to first-round status besides Holland and Panay Sewell. I mean, maybe 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 Thomas Graham or Diamond Lenore shows up as seniors in the fall or whenever football is played and just elevates their game beyond measure. And Lenore probably is the one that has the frame to, you know, the, the physical attributes to, to get there, and, and maybe he has a huge year that, that vaults him up to the top. But more than likely, I'm not going to say anyone else gets there uh, as a second-round draft pick. But, I mean, you just start going down the list, and we could see a year in which five, six, seven, eight Duck players get picked in in the overall seven rounds of the draft, just because let's just run through the list real quick. Yeah, We, 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 we know Sewell is 
Well, he's never come out and said he's going to go pro. <laughs> Look, every every mock out there has him in the top five. So more than likely, it would be it would be a huge shock. To, um, it would be the shock that everyone outside of the Oregon bubble felt like when Justin Herbert came back. I know well, Oregon fan wasn't really shocked when Herbert came back, but outside of the Oregon bubble, people were. The only way I could see it happening is if somehow the the idea of playing with Noah Sewell, his brother, for an extra year is at the top, forefront of his mind. But otherwise, it makes no sense. Correct. I agree. And then we have Holland, so that's two. And then let's just go through the seniors real quick. And I, I think Jordan Scott will get drafted. That's three. Thomas Graham, four. Yamade Lenore, five. You also look at Austin Folio is going to have a chance at, at getting drafted. That's six. Uh, I, I think Brady Breeze will have a chance late in the round, seven. And then we're, we're talking, okay, well, does, does a guy like a Johnny Johnson get picked? Does a guy like Nick Pickett get picked? What what about uh, does it, do we see an early departure with CJ Verdell? I, I think I think Verdell is is the one that while he may not end up being the fifth best running back in the draft, I think he still goes just because, or at least is going to consider it strongly because he will have had played three straight years as a starting running back at Oregon. Let's just assume he goes for a 1,000 because he's done it for the last two seasons. Running backs don't have a long shelf life. And this is a guy that in his first two seasons has dealt with some kind of an injury both years. His redshirt year was because of an injury. And when you start stacking injuries on top of injuries and you play the running back position, you need to get paid as quickly as you can to maximize your profits. And so I think Verdell will be another one, and he'll get picked. I, I, I don't doubt that. I just wonder where he'll get picked. But nonetheless, I mean, we're already at eight, you know, eight or so guys that have good chances of, of hearing their names called. And that's before we even discuss, like, a Stephen Jones or a Malasala, uh, maybe some other player – Explodes. Maybe an Adrian Jackson has a huge year as, as a redshirt sophomore and goes pro. Uh, so I, I think there's there's some chances out there that Oregon could could see that record fall uh, this coming season. I think I think it would, I don't know if it's going to necessarily be the 2021 draft. It could be, but I, I think you're going to see over the next three draft cycles, and I'm using 2021, 22, and 23 um, for this. That graph, that record's gonna fall. That, that seven players is gonna fall. And it might fall multiple times, if I'm being honest. Just cause you just look at the roster right now, and we said this so many times, but it's not just the top tier talent, it's just not, it's not the fact that, and I just saw, uh, Kevin Wade, our colleague, tweeted out the fact that Kev, Kevon Thibodeau is, is number one in, I think, at the 2022 Walter Football mock draft. So that could be consecutive years with top overall picks, or certainly top picks, but, it's just not those type of guys. It's not just the Kayvons and the Penes and the Justin Herberts. It's the fact that there's so much depth accumulating around them. And I could really see a scenario where you just ran through the 2021 draft class, but you've moved to 2022. And that's the class where you start seeing that's Kayvon Thibodeau's class, which was the highest rated recruiting class in program history. And that's where maybe you start seeing some of the success on the recruiting trail at its greatest effect. And I could see that being a class where they sign a ton of guys or a ton of guys go pro and are highly drafted. The next class could be the year where 
would be the year where Noah Sewell and Justin Flo are eligible. And that could also be clearly a class where the Ducks have a lot of guys taken. Um, you throw, obviously throw out a player like a Mikhail Wright, who is a young player who would be eligible in 2022 or 2023, depending on when he wants to go. Um, there, there's just a lot of really highly regarded and talented young players on the roster right now. So I think if it's not 2021 where the record goes down, I think it would be 2022 or 2023. And I could, again, I could see it. Maybe you get seven guys in 2021 and then you get eight guys in 2022 and nine guys in 2023. This could be just something that continues to build. And I know nine players drafted is, is SEC kind of good. Um, for sure, and I, although I think I saw LSU had like ten guys go in the first three rounds or something crazy, just but, straight ridiculous, which is insane. But for Oregon and the way their program has been and developed, a class where they have close to ten players drafted would be incredible. I think we're going to start getting to that point in these next three draft cycles. Okay, we're 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 a little over time here. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And there was plenty of news over the weekend from an Oregon football perspective on the field, we've also got some off-the-field stuff as well, but some sneaky decision that flew under the radar a little bit here with the NBA, with the NFL draft going on and everyone's focus on that. Uh, we also saw the NBA draft deadline come and pass, and that brought with it some really good news for the men's basketball team because last week Ain Allman went on an interview with Andy Katz and said that you know he he expects 11 guys on scholarship right now and that he, he you know he he ran through a list of guys that were coming back he says we're coming back we expect these guys back well we got more confirmation of we think that no player for the first time in 3 seasons think about that Eric how far this program has come for the men's basketball team yeah. First time in three seasons, no player at Oregon declared early for the NBA draft. And that came after I think Troy Brown became the first player to declare early in program history, like to start this thing. So yeah, things have changed certainly. Um, and yeah, now now you can say here, we should note that Francis Okoro uh, has transferred. That that happened sure. quite recently here. But this Oregon team is going to look, and again, that more players could transfer. But we can kind of now with the NF- NBA deadline passing, kind of. 
write these these names on the Oregon ro- roster in permanent ink. I mean, it's they can leave, but this is pretty clear that Oregon's going to have this is going to be their roster. Uh, looking at this, Matt, now obviously Chris Duarte is probably the one that was maybe still up in the air. You get Duarte back. What, what do you think of this? Uh, how does this kind of set up Oregon? And I know there are teams in the Pac-12 that weren't as fortunate in Oregon that did see players leave. Kind of where do you see Oregon kind of in the Pac-12 hierarchy right now? I know it's far out to look at and things can change, certainly. But kind of what was your takeaway by the fact that Oregon gets everybody back and you look at schools like Arizona and USC um, I think even Arizona State and Washington, and they have each kind of lost a couple of young guys. I look at, well, first and foremost, I, I think it's safe to assume, even though Pritchard's gone, the Shakur Jusin and Anthony Mathis are gone, I think it's safe to assume that next year could be one of Oregon's better seasons under Dana Altman. Because go back to I what I consider his three or four most – successful teams in his 10 seasons at Oregon. That would be the Final Four team in 2017, the 2016 Elite Eight team, and then you could argue the 2013 Sweet 16 team or the 2019 Sweet 16 team. The common theme among all four of those teams is that their best player and arguably probably their their second best player were not freshmen. And they leaned on they were older teams. Mm-hmm. Um the 2013 team, they started two freshmen in their starting lineup. It was Damian Dotson and Dominic Artis, but then they had seniors in Elgin Cook, Arsalan Kazemi, and Tony Woods. Their top reserve was Carlos Emery who came off the bench as a senior as well. And then they had Johnny Lloyd, who I believe was uh, a a junior on that team. Mm -hmm. And you look at the 2016 Elite Eight team, you know, they had Dylan Brooks, who was a sophomore, Casey Benson, who was a sophomore, Jordan Bell was a sophomore, Chris Boucher was a junior, Elgin Cook and Dwayne Benjamin were seniors on that team, and Tyler Dorsey was the lone freshman, really that played significant minutes in, on that team. Uh, the Final Four team, it, it was a bunch of juniors and, and seniors and one sophomore, and then they had one freshman, and that was Peyton Pritchard. And then the 2019 team that made the Elite Eight, or excuse me, made, that made the Sweet 16, you know, they were a squad that had Pritchard as a junior, and then they had Lewis King in the starting lineup as a as a freshman, but then they had Kenny Wooten, they had Paul White, and they and they also had freshman Francis Okoro. But they also coming off the bench, they had Victor Bailey, they had Ehab Amin. I mean, that was a team that had a lot of experience around it as well. And then this season, of course, uh, who knows where they would have finished in the tournament, but they're one of the better teams as well. And you know, their best players were seniors or sophomores. Uh, on the team, and I think next year it lines up like the Sweet 16 2013 team, the Elite Eight 2016 team, and the Final Four 2017 team. In that, all of their 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 players, their their better players, are going to be upperclassmen, are going to be older players, and I think that excites St. Alma. I think these te- these type of teams. 
they connect better with Dana Altman and, and their coach and his coaching staff's style of, of coaching and development. And um, so I, I think, I personally think they're the favorites to win the conference. Now, if you check out the top 25 rankings, um, a lot of people out there right now have a couple teams higher up than Oregon or right around the same spot. The most noticeable one is Arizona State, who's basically being billed as a top 12, top 10 type team just because they have Remy Martin coming back. He's in the draft, but he, he's not signing with an agent, or he he's keeping his eligibility open. Uh, Romello White is another guy that will be coming back as well, but it's also in the draft. And you know, they've got a, a good core group of guys coming back. Plus, they've signed jo- uh, Joseph Christopher, who's a top 10 player in the country, a five-star guard. So they've got experience, and they have elite players coming in. So I kind of understand them, but I, I would still pick Oregon over ASU. Just, you know, long-term play, the Ducks have always been the better program. Uh, UCLA is another team that's kind of right around the same area as as Oregon because they've got some um, five stars coming in. Deshaun Nix, the number one point guard in the country, plus a large group of returners coming back um, from this past season's team. But then against Oregon, I, I'd argue, you know, it, it took, you know, one of the, the craziest runs we've seen in the last four or five seasons by uh, any basketball team in the country for for UCLA to become one of these tournament teams. They had to, you know, go like. 12 and 4, you know, out of their 14, final 14 games to, to make the tournament, uh, before the Pac-12 tournament had started. So, I, I think Oregon is still the team to beat in the Pac-12, and I think it's safe to assume that Oregon is going to be a team that could be a final four contender. It just seems silly to bet against Dana Altman when he has a experienced roster back. I mean, that you ran through the track record, and that's exactly right. And that's kind of the first thing I thought of too, of just like, you, you ran through all those rosters and, and the way they were set up. Dana Altman's best teams have been teams that have had a lot of experience and veteran players. Um, they experimented, and we've talked about this in the podcast and obviously on the website, they've, they experimented with those one-and-dones, those top recruits, and mixed results to kind of not the best results for the most part. Um, Troy Brown obviously was a high draft pick as a one-and-done. That went well, but the, the rest of them, kind of none of them have been kind of that type of tier player. Um, and certainly Troy Brown's college career, you can nitpick how that went. That was the lone season where the Ducks didn't make the NCAA tournament in quite some time. So um, this, it just seems like it, you're right. It just seems like things work better when there's experience. And I don't know if that's, you know, what system related. I don't know if that's related to the type of personality that Altman relates best to. But it does seem when you put a roster around him that are older veteran players and he's not relying on young, inexperienced talent, the teams play a lot, a lot higher level, and you can expect them to be extremely competitive. And that's certainly what the roster looks like right now. I mean, I know Matt has done quite a few projections on the site on kind of what the starting lineup would look like. It would be a very veteran starting lineup, the way you're, the way you kind of draw it up. It's a lineup that would start a lot of juniors and seniors, maybe a sophomore. Um, it would be a very, very ex- – and I think that's something you have to be excited about based upon what Dane Altman has done in the past – um, if you look at this group, is there a weakness on the roster? And do you think, I know we talked about this a little bit after Okora left, but do you think there is a likelihood that they do add some player between now and the start of the season? Or do you think they'll hold on to a couple of scholarships here to, to, to have 
to maybe add somebody during the season or just use it towards the 2021 uh, recruiting class? Well, I, I think they're pretty much done for 2020 unless there's a reclass guy that, that pops up. Um, they can't – Dane Altman's staff doesn't ever guarantee playing time, but they can't even realistically go to anyone right now and that's a grad transfer and that's looking for more playing time or, you know, wants, you know, a fresh start, what have you, and come out and say, look, you got an opportunity to win 25 minutes and be a starter. Like, I, I just don't think – a, there's anyone out there that's worth that, and B, I don't think the the possibilities of that happening are highly likely because every position has two guys that you feel good about and their potential at that at their position for the for the next season. So I think what happens is if if a reclassification pops up, then they'll go after that player. Makes sense. Uh, if maybe there's a transfer that's open to sitting a year, I think that's another way that they could add a, another piece. Um, and then from there, it's just if they don't find any of those two options, they'll carry over the scholarship for the 2021 recruiting class. Because look, the reality is they could see a couple guys go pro as well, and you'll need some you'll need some help. And they've got three seniors. Uh, Amari Hardy, the grad transfer, Eugene Amari, the Rutgers transfer who sat out this past season. And then you've got Chris DeWartz. You have three start, you have three seniors. All three of those guys are probably in your top six of your rotation. All three could be starters. You also could see a Will Richardson go pro. You also could see an Infale Dante. You also could see a CJ Walker go pro, I think, from, from the roster that they have. And so, I, carrying over a scholarship player, or carrying over a scholarship just so that you have a little more ammunition to go out and add some pieces to the 2021-2022 roster will, will, will give you some flexibility. I, I think so. I think that's probably the long-term way. But as, outside of holes, like I, I can't think of of anything that's glaring. Maybe a shot blocker, but who's out there? I don't know if there's anyone out there that, that can provide that type of impact that you're looking for. But even then, like, I don't necessarily look at it and say, like, it's a glaring hole that Oregon's going to have to work around. We, we started this segment talking about the NBA draft. Uh, I'm curious, Matt, your perspective on Peyton Pritchard and his chance to be drafted, and do you think he is drafted, A, and, and do you think he could be someone that slides into the first round possibly? I know it's hard to project and – it could hurt him that maybe there's going to be limited pre-draft workout opportunities with teams. I think he's someone that would probably impress them with just, he's probably a little bit more impressive, you know, with the eyeball test in person than he would be on film. Um, would you have you garnered any idea of kind of what your expectations are for, for when that takes place? Yeah, he's actually a borderline first rounder right now, which is, is pretty crazy to see because when the season ended, he was kind of in that high forties, low fifties out of 60 overall picks. Right. He's now kind of moved into the the high 30s, and some have even have him as high as like 33 from a mock, from a mock draft perspective. And speaking with Pritchard and his agent, he said that, or I didn't speak with his agent, but he said speaking with his agent that the agent felt like the current status where the NBA is kind of shut down because the rest of the country is shut down. The agent believes for Pritchard that his stock will only go up because teams are having the way that they're 
basing their rankings off of and that they're you know doing their scouting report is off of game film and and previous scouts. And Pritchard said, as a senior, I, I had one of the best years ever in the country, you know, at Oregon, and I had one of the best years at the position in the country this past year. And so I think he felt like when the scouts popped in the tape and reviewed his his performances, it's only going to come back positive because I can't think of any game where he was like, God, Peyton was awful, or he he could not hang in that position. And and so that's a positive. Now I do agree with you, like. I think if he could go out and, and the scouts see that film and bring him in and for an eye test and, and then say, oh, yeah, he is this quick. Oh, yeah, he is this good. Then we can see his stock kind of go up even more. But I, I wouldn't, Eric, I wouldn't be surprised if, and you follow the NBA much more closer than I do, but I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm just going to say this as an example because most people out there know this, but like a team like the Lakers, who are in win now mode to the extreme. They are, they are not worried about finding some guy who in three years could, could potentially be a rotation player. They are needing to find players that can help them today win games. It wouldn't surprise me if that type of a team, a, a, a Los Angeles Laker team, a Los Angeles Clipper team, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Toronto Raptors, you know, and I don't know their fits and their positions depth, but those types of teams who are in win now mode, they trade up, they trade back, they trade back in, or they just use their pick to, to get a guy like Pritchard knowing, Hey, you know what? In five years, he may not be a superstar player, but in the next three years, when our window is at its Biggest point to win a championship, he can play 10, 15 minutes a game, and he's on a, on a really cheap deal. That's ultra valuable to us. I could see a, a, a high playoff caliber team drafting him late in the first round. Yeah, he's a super high floor, ceiling maybe not that high kind of guy is would be my perception too of like you know what you're getting with him. And I think actually Lakers wouldn't be like an awful, awful fit if you look at their roster. They, they they could use a point guard or somebody to play that role or somebody to at least handle the basketball when LeBron's not on the court. And of course can you can you imagine it joining that Laker franchise as a as a rookie? What it what an incredible opportunity that would be. Um but I think you're right in terms of like you look at how these championship teams have been constructed. It isn't always, you know, it, Typically, the teams that go out and take these young players are kind of rebuilding franchises that are not necessarily needing results to be achieved immediately. And But there are, of course, the counter to that is there are 10 or 12 franchises, maybe more than that right now because the league's pretty competitive, that are in win mode. Yeah, like you said, are in let's win right now mode. And I have to think of Peyton Pritchard is going to be somebody who is capable of of really changing that and really helping teams in that regard. I mean, he can go out there and come off the bench and score. He can handle the ball. He can defend at a high enough level. He can distribute it. I think he's shown enough to, to certainly make an NBA roster, and I think you're right in terms of if he can get in the right fit, there is no reason he can't have, like, an Alex Caruso career with the Lakers, who is a player who is a lesser college player who's now, um, you know, a regular rotation player with the Lakers as a guard or a Fred Van Vliet, who's turned into a really good player for the Raptors, but similar to Pritchard was a four-year player, or maybe it's a three-year player at Wichita State, but kind of people didn't necessarily know what his fit was going to be. He's turned out to be a really good player. Obviously, T.J. McConnell is a comparison I've seen as well previously. But, yeah, there there is a history of these kind of veteran guards 
who are really good college players who maybe don't have that. They're not six six with seven foot wingspans. They don't have all the that exciting athleticism, but they just know how to play basketball. That those guys can really fit and carve out long NBA careers. And there, to me, there's no reason that Peyton Pritchard can't be one of those guys. I also look at like a Matei Steibel from Washington last year. Like this was a guy that was viewed as he's strictly going to be a defensive player, and that's really all you're going to get out of him. And he's flourishing for the 76ers because they had a specific need. He could fill it, and so he's playing a ton. And so I, I think there's going to be a team out there that says, you know what, like we don't want to pay $8 million for a backup point guard to play 10 minutes a game. And we could draft Peyton Pritchard and save $6, $7 million a year by doing that and spend that money elsewhere by re-signing this player or going out and adding another wing or getting under the tax threshold, what have you, and getting the same value that you're getting from player whatever and slotting Pritchard in for his place. I think that's where teams are going to draft Pritchard. It wouldn't surprise me if I, I probably think he probably is going to be a second-round pick, maybe like the you know somewhere in the, the low 30s, 30, 31 or 31 to 35, but it, I think it's it's growing in possibility that he gets selected in that first round. Yeah, I just think for him it would be nice if he would have had an opportunity. You mentioned the quickness. I think there are things he does in person that you get you kind of get lost, and I think an opportunity to see him live would have would have helped his draft stock. But obviously, that's unfortunately not going to be a reality. And maybe that makes it even much that much more of a steal when a franchise can grab him when he could have been a player that was taken significantly earlier if they'd you know had more opportunity to see him live. One hundred percent, I agree with you there. Um, I think that's going to do it for us on this Odds and Audible's podcast, an episode that, quite honestly, we could have gone a lot longer. So we've saved some stuff for you. We'll we'll dive into some of it uh, later on in this week. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. And for Eric Scopel, myself, you've been listening to the Oz and Audible's podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the bike. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.